Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my longtime friend, Braden Orgel. Welcome to the podcast, Braden. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, just to give you a little background on what we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about Braden's um, journey um, after a wonderful mission to a really dark place where for a couple of years he was thinking pretty consistently about self-harm and suicide. And um, we'll talk about kind of what got him there, and then we'll talk about a lunch he had with the dear friend Doug Cartwright that really changed his narrative and was the key pivot point for him moving into a much better space, which he is. So if you're suicidal, if you feel like um, as you flew home for your mission and then what's become of your life since your mission is not what you hoped it would be, or if you're trying to help somebody who's in a dark spot or a difficult spot, Braden has a story to tell and he's sharing it openly and publicly. And I think it will help you. Um, I'll just read a tweet. I, Braden has been with me on Twitter since high school. He's one of the when I started my Twitter account, it was to talk, it was to interact with the Cottonwood High School um, students, and I used to tweet out the morning weather report, and that was the focus of my social media um, a while ago. But Braden's been with me on Twitter, and um, I'll read his tweet from September 25th of 2020. One year ago on this day, I was researching how to make my suicide look like an accident. Today, I woke up next to my wife, played with my daughter wrote a few chapters in my book, and had a coaching call with one of my students and launched my new YouTube series. And then I'll talk more about that in this. But I just love Braden being open. I've learned that appropriately talking about suicide is a key to solving suicide and keeping people out of that desert. Um, Braden graduated from Cottonwood High School here in Salt Lake City in 2012. He's the same age as one of our sons. You served a mission where? In Jalapa, Mexico. I should remember that. Um, I think I came to your farewell and your homecoming, and Braden was a key leader at our high school. He's this larger-than-life personality that everybody's just drawn to. Um, He's just a magnet. Um, He's a natural leader, but people just love Braden Orgel um, because he's just someone that people are drawn to. He's full of light and goodness, and I don't share that to sort of... um, I share that to just partly help everybody understand that what is going on on someone's outside and how they're feeling and maybe how we see them may not be at all what's going on in the inside. And so I think it's important to understand what's going on at times. So that's probably a good enough introduction. Tell us, um, is there anything you'd just like to say before we get started? You know, um, I'm excited to see where this conversation takes us. And uh, I have the overwhelming desire to share with everybody, but especially those of my generation and of a younger generation, that it's simply okay to be where you are and to relax into who you are. That you don't have to fit, um, you don't have to buy the story that's sold to you. You can be who you are. And I think that there is so much pressure to fit a certain mold. Um, You know, and this is going to be different for everybody, but uh, you've got an internal narrative about who you are and that's going to influence how you interact with the world and how you see yourself. And it's just simply okay to embrace who you are. 
Um, if there's nothing else you get from the podcast today, I would hope that it's that. And I feel the need to share that with everybody. Take us to where you were when you had lunch with Doug, Doug Cartwright. Um, introduce Doug to us and introduce kind of the time frame of this lunch. Yeah. So, so at this point, this is in late 2019. So this isn't that long ago. And Doug at the time was simply an acquaintance. Like I kind of knew him through mutual friends. We went to the same gym for a little bit and I'd see him here and there, but you know, not a, not a really deep friendship by any means. Um, but by late 2019, I was thinking about suicide every day. I worked on, I remember I worked on the 23rd floor of the South Temple Tower downtown. And every single day I would think about, and really, to be honest with you, fantasize about um, climbing up to the roof and, and jumping off. Um, and it was so confusing to me. I had been like this for probably two years. Um, and by this point I was self-harming, but I was so confused because on paper, everything in my life was great. You know, you, you would look at who I was on paper and you would think, well, you know, what's this guy got to complain about? But I felt so empty and desolate. I had felt this way, like ever since I came home from my mission and I could not explain why. And I felt guilty on top of everything for feeling like that because like I said, everything was great. I came from, you know, I won the parent lottery in the sense that I came from an amazing home. I had all the friends in the world, um, but felt so unfulfilled and so empty. And I couldn't, I didn't feel I could talk to anybody about it because I felt like nobody would understand me. Um, and so I had reached out to Doug because he had been open about his use of psychedelic drugs and the positive self-transformation that had occurred as a result of, of his use. And so I reached out to him and I said, hey, um, I'm self-harming. I am contemplating suicide every day and I need to get out of my own head. And so I reached out to Doug and, and uh, he told me that at the time he was living, I think in Austin, Texas. And he said, well, let's, let's just have lunch, you know, before you decide to do that, let's just have a lunch. And I went to lunch with him and he just, you know, we caught up for like five minutes. He said, tell me how you're feeling. I, I told him everything. And he listened very intently and he said something that really surprised me because I thought for sure he was going to help me get the psychedelics so that I could trip and, and get out of my head or whatever. And, um, he said, you know, I don't think, you know, if you want to, if you still want to do psychedelics when we're done talking, then I'll help you get them. But I don't think that that's the answer for you. And I was like, well, what do you mean? <laughs> I want to do it. And he said, your whole problem is you're telling yourself an awful story. And I was like, what does that mean? And he told me, and this was completely foreign to me. No one had ever told me this. And he told me that everybody on earth has an internal narrative that they've adopted about who they are, about their place in the world, about the world itself, about other people. We all have an internal narrative. And he said, the one that you're telling yourself is just awful. He said, at any point, you can decide to blow that narrative up and just rewrite it. 
And I had, I, there are very few things that I have heard in my life for the first time that felt like I had heard them before. I mean, this, this rang to my core that I had a narrative. I had never thought of that. I just thought that I was how I was and that the world was how the world was and that life carried on like that. And so I left lunch that day and I was completely mind blown because I started to dissect and define these narratives that I had about myself, that I was defective or that, you know, I thought that because I hadn't graduated from college that I was useless to the professional world. And I thought that, you know, being, if you're outside the church, it doesn't sound, if you're not a member, live outside Utah or whatever, it might not sound that, that old, but you know, I was 25 and, and, uh, unmarried. I had, um, an entertaining dating life, but I couldn't get anywhere with women past like the surface attraction level. Right. I couldn't get anywhere deeper than that. Um, and so I thought that I provided no value to women. I was severely overweight at the time. So I thought that, um, you know, I was ugly. I thought that I was just meant to be that way, that it was my cross to bear. Um, and so there were all these, these narratives that I was constantly feeding myself subconsciously. And it wasn't until I took the time to actually pick these apart. So I, I leave lunch that day and I'm just thinking about, it just consumes my mind for like the rest of the day. And then I woke up that next morning and I felt like I had finally turned a corner, like everything was going to be okay, which had never occurred to me that everything was okay and that I was exactly where I was supposed to be. It's a really cool, really cool lunch, really powerful thing that Doug, it's cool. You felt safe reaching out to Doug yeah, and could talk about suicide and that he could understand that space and sort of get it. I, do you want to talk any more about your internal narrative? Just what was in your head for those couple of years? Or do you feel like you've kind of gone through that? Okay. Yeah. I felt like, um, the best way I can describe it is um, I just felt like I was damaged goods. I forgot to mention that by this point I had, I was abusing prescription painkillers and sleep medication and um, was drinking and, um, you know, into the party scene a little bit. And so I thought because of that, that I was just completely now defective, ruined, um, had lowered my ceiling as far as what I was capable of, um, and my place in the world. And so this was constantly running through my head. And the, the crazy thing about it was it was completely made up. It, I created that story in my own mind, um, without realizing it. It was, I just thought that, like I said, I was how I was and the world was how the world was at the time. Talk about, um, I admire you being open about uh-huh. the pain, the pain of pill abuse. You didn't say it that way. I said it that way and drinking. What do you think was at the core of that? The core of that was that my mind was so tied up in the future. And um, my favorite author, Seth Godin, actually, he, he describes anxiety as experiencing failure in advance. So that's a great definition. You know, I think that 
especially in Western culture, we're always thinking about the next thing, right? You graduate high school, what's next? You graduate college, you get your degree, what's next? You get a job, what's next? And my mind was so tied up in what's next that I was missing. Like I was forgetting what was now. I wasn't appreciating what now was. And so I was thinking like, okay, as soon as I have a family or as soon as I get a wife, like then I'll be happy. Then I'll be fulfilled. Or as soon as I make this much money, then I'll be fulfilled. Or as soon as I have this house and this car, whatever, right? Then I'll be fulfilled. And so the, when I was able to dissect this story, it was all revolved around um, imagining this future outcome that I was tethering my happiness to. That until I got that, I couldn't be happy. And that's why I say, that's why my message is that it never occurred to me that I was exactly who I was supposed to be and where I was supposed to be in life. And I think that a lot of people are just in that same spot. And we're just always thinking about what's next. And I was, but I was imagining terrible outcomes all the time in the future. So do you think the drugs and the alcohol were rebellion? Um, do you think it was just to mask all this pain and sort of a coping mechanism? Mm -hmm. I mean, what, talk about that. Yeah, it was certainly always to numb out. It, that was always the purpose of it. I never felt rebellious. I never felt like I needed to get revenge on God or anybody who, it was never out of rebellion. It was always just like the pain of feeling this torture that I was creating in my mind. I needed to silence it and I didn't know how. And that's why I turned to drugs and alcohol and, you know, other stuff to, to do that. It was simply to mask that. That's helpful for me. I mean, I think I've talked a lot in the podcast about the iceberg concept that with the YSAs, often they'd come in and talk about their behavior issues. And if the longer I served, the more we'd put the behavior issues kind of on the shelf and try to understand what was really going down at the bottom of the iceberg. Because I felt like if we just stayed at the behavior level, you know, to solve a lot of the behavior, yeah. we needed to get down to the bottom of the iceberg. And often a bishop obviously can't do that, or a parent needed a therapist, or a friend like Doug helped you, and and the Savior can help us. But I just think that we need to understand what's going on at the bottom of the iceberg, and then we can connect more dots and solve things at the top of the iceberg. Does that resonate with you, given your experience, Braden? Oh, absolutely. And I, lo I love what you said about behavior and focusing on behavior, because underneath that behavior is that underlying narrative. And a lot of the times, you know, most of the time, the, the narratives that we adopt, they're not our fault if they're not self-serving. It's, it can date way back to things we experienced in early childhood or, you know, something that somebody said to us one day when we were a teenager and we chose to believe it, you know, like I said, subconsciously. So, you know, obviously it goes a lot deeper than that. There's, you know, stories of abuse and, and a lot of different painful experiences that people go through, but that all contributes to this underlying narrative, which influences then the behavior and the way that we interact with ourselves and with each other and with the world. How much of this narrative um, was tied into you not having a temple recommend? Because I think there was a period of time with this behavior didn't have a temple recommend. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a tough spot to be for a return missionary who probably never thought that would be part of my story. So how much of it was tied in to just church standards and not measuring up to probably your expectations and how much of it was not really related to that? Yeah, such a good question. 
uh, I remember like this was right before I got into all that. And um, like I was going to the singles ward and I was going to, I was studying at UVU at the time and I was living down in Provo. And so I looked around at people and would not on purpose, but like subconsciously compare myself to them. You know, how do I rank compared to so-and-so or how, why am I not more like them? You know, or the, the guys who looked like they were quote unquote successful or, um, the guy or whatever, like how, what can I do to, to be more like them? So I got caught up in this, like this hamster wheel of doing things just be, just to be like everybody else, just to fit in. And that is such a miserable way to live is to try to be like everybody else. But I felt like I had to. So I got that, like that just created so much burnout of not fully embracing who I was and being myself, but trying to fit in, trying to be like everybody else. And it's this constant um, just chatter and noise in my head that I have to do this so I can be like so-and-so, or I have to fit in, I have to do this to fit in. So um, when I didn't have my temple recommend, I, in a weird way, I wanted to get it back, but I felt like I was finally free from trying to fit a mold. I was like, okay, I'm like out of the rat race now. I don't have to be like, I'm not like everybody else. I don't have a temple recommend. So, and I, I say everybody else, you know, meaning like people I was going to church with and living with and stuff. And so I finally felt like I was free from that, but I did, I always knew in the back of my head that I would get back to the temple. Um, talk about the time. Was there a certain time of day when you being in your head and this narrative before you had lunch peaked? Like, just tell our listeners, um, yeah. was it days of the week? Was it times of the day? Was it times of the year? Just help our listeners understand more. And were things that triggered it? Yeah. Uh, I remember, and I wrote almost a whole chapter about this in my book, but at night when I would go to sleep, like before the, the sleep meds would kick in, I would feel this suffocating anxiety when I like, there was no TV on. I didn't have my, I wasn't listening to music and I was just alone with my own thoughts. That's when it would creep in, you know, throughout the day I would have all these, these stimuli with, you know, I was listening to music or I was talking to somebody, but whatever. So I was able to kind of tune it out. But then when I finally like had to be alone with my own thoughts that night, then I would feel it was very, it was like a visceral reaction. I would feel anxiety in my chest area always at night. It was especially heavy, like to give you an example on weekends when I was at home and it seemed like everybody in the world was out doing something or, you know, friends were with each other. I felt like I wasn't invited somewhere then it would be especially strong, but it was always at night. You know, I'd feel it throughout the day too, but always at night when, when I was alone with my own thoughts, that's when it was the worst. Talk about your self-harm, if you're willing to share with our listeners the type of self-harm you engaged in. Yeah. So uh, this starts on the night of my brother's wedding in 2019. It was August 9th. And anybody who knows um, or 
is familiar with my brothers and my relationship, we have always been best friends. And I love that kid so much. And I was so happy because he was marrying the, he had been in love with this girl since like seventh grade. True. And he finally got her and they were getting married. And so I had worked for two years with my bishop to get my temple recommend back to go to the temple for my brother's ceiling. And I finally had it. And that night, um, you know, I go to my brother's wedding and all day, all anybody can tell me or ask me is uh, something along the lines of, are you mad that he beat you to it? Or haha, he beat you to it, which for the record, I never thought of it like that. I never What's thought. What's the age difference between you two? Two and a half years. Two and a half years younger. Yeah. And so people said, I mean, they didn't mean anything by it, right? It was just kind of jokingly, but it was so frequent that night that I was like, is that how, like, there, there was almost no questions about me or, you know, how my life was going. Not that that night was about me, but it was so frequent and from everybody that I was like, oh my gosh, like people see me as just the unmarried brother. That's, that's who I am to everybody I know now. And that had never occurred to me. So I went home that night and on top of everything, that was like kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And I was feeling so emotionally uh, hurt that I just started to make myself throw up. I didn't ever like plan on doing that. I just remember I just went in the bathroom and I would just stick my fingers in the back of my throat, make myself throw up. And that was so that I would feel some sort of physical pain to mask the emotional pain. And so then that became my method along with the drugs to um, numb out and mask that, that uh, emotional pain was I would just make myself throw up. Really glad you shared that. Um, if your brother's listening, I think he knows you. I think he's glad you shared that. We love your brother. You know him obviously yeah. better than I do. But I think we get in these situations where we're generally happy for somebody and you're totally happy for your brother. But culturally, we talked to you that night about you've got a great job. You've got a great life. There's so many things we could talk to you about that night. Yeah. Um, but then f- you are, t- you have a gift of communication, by the way, Braden. And you, then you s- went home that night and thought, oh my gosh, that's who I am. The unmarried older brother. Yeah. And, um, then the next step seems pretty logical of what you're trying to do to cope with that. Sure. I remember some of the first YSAs, the first people in my life that ever opened up about self-harm were some of the YSAs. And they taught me that that's why they do it is they just want to feel something besides the emotional pain that mm-hmm. they felt. I, and I realized that if they're willing to engage in self-harm, that, that I can identify with, I, I've never done what you've done um, to throw up that way, but I recognize that I've cut myself accidentally in the yard and that's really painful. And so people that cut themselves or do some of the other self-harm that perhaps I've experienced by accident in my life, I recognize where they are emotionally that they'd rather feel that. Yeah. And how they feel inside. Mm-hmm. And it helps me have more empathy for where you are and where many people are, including listeners right now. Um, do you have a feeling where you'd like to go on this podcast next, or do you want me to keep asking you questions? Yeah, your questions are, are great. Talk about, I want you to talk to people that are suicidal. Well, I want to be 
careful about how I do this because um, if you are suicidal or you are contemplating it or you've ever thought about it before or it's even just crossed your mind, uh, I want you to know that you are so much closer to feeling joy and ecstatic bliss than you think you are. And if you can keep hanging on for just one more day and you keep doing that, then eventually your life will turn into something more beautiful than you could ever imagine right now, than you could ever fathom. And the analogy that comes to my mind as I'm saying this is there's a plant that I've read about called the Chinese bamboo tree. And this tree, once it's planted in the ground, it has to be watered and fertilized for five years. And for those five years, it doesn't even break the ground. So for like the last five years, I felt like I wasn't even breaking ground. But then sometime between years five and six, it breaks through the ground and it grows 90 feet tall in the matter of six weeks. So for five years, it doesn't break ground. And then in the matter of six weeks, grows 90 feet tall. And I read that analogy or I heard it, I can't remember where, but I heard it and I was like, that's exactly what life felt like. And it just felt like this slog that I was surviving for five years. And then in such a quick amount of time, my life just bloomed into the most overwhelmingly fulfilling. I still feel almost guilty that I'm in the the place that I am right now because, you know, to be as happy as I am, what did I do to deserve it? Well, all I did was I just kept hanging on. And I just thought if I can just make it to tomorrow, maybe, you know, lightning will strike and I'll catch my lucky break or whatever. But my message to you is that if you can just keep hanging on as badly as it hurts, then you'll experience that time when the tree goes, grows 90 feet tall. And I feel very confident in making that promise to anybody because I lived it. It's a great segment. Um, I put on Instagram, this doesn't directly apply um, to Braden's story, but it may in some elements. On your flight home from your mission, did you promise not to make the same mistakes you made before your mission and then made them? You are not back to square one. You are still worthy of God's love. Stay positive. Make progress. Be kind to yourself. Look forward. You will be okay. I just, I, I just think culturally we always look at, you know, we just want to always, this is toxic perfectionism that some people, and there's a lot of things in our culture that make us just want to be perfect. And and there's lots of different check boxes that we potentially compare ourselves to to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And one could be temple recommend, no temple recommend. One could be all these different things. And I like the way you were talking about it, Utah County. And I just, when you were there with a, 
a bunch of other people your age, it's pretty easy for men and women of all ages to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Talk about, and you kind of talked about the culture, talk about what we can do. And then in that segment, you also talked about, I was working so hard to fit in. Mm -hmm. And I use a quote on this podcast a lot, fitting in from Brene Brown, fitting in is a setting a situation. And I'm paraphrasing, becoming something you need to be to fit in. Belonging, on the other hand, doesn't require us to change who we are. It requires us to be who we are. I love that. And you're doing a really good job of just belonging. You're owning Braden Orgel for who he is. And I think that's the way heavenly parents feel about you. But let's kind of talk about what we can do to improve the culture so that people feel like they belong based on who they are versus the cultural expectation. Well, before we get into that, I think it's necessary to highlight what you're doing here. And you show up so consistently and so generously for people who feel that they are on the fringes of either the church or, you know, whatever society that they're in. Um, And so obviously doing this type of thing is helpful, but I think just individually, just giving every human being the dignity that they deserve. I think that that's one of the best gifts we can give anybody. And I think that this has to start at the individual level. I think that, you know, I, I, I don't feel that I'm in a place to say what we can do organizationally, but just at the individual level, we can just treat everybody like they belong because they do. And we don't have to, we've created this stigma for whatever reason around people who don't fit a certain mold. And, you know, life doesn't, that's not true. At what point did we decide that that was true? And I don't think that that's only true inside church culture. I think that the educational system does a great job of just from age five, just stifling the individuality out of kids. And I think that um, social media does a great job of making you feel like you just have to fit a certain mold to be cool or to be liked or whatever. And so I think just at the individual level, first, you need to embrace your own individuality. You need to relax into who you are. That's the best way I can put it, is just relax into who you are. It's okay. God made you how you are, and it's a beautiful thing. But then we need to assume that that's true for everybody else and treat them that way as well. One of my favorite quotes is that everybody you meet knows something that you don't. So, and this is something that you're so great at, is be curious with people. Take the time to ask them questions. And, you know, just simple things like greeting people with a smile goes such a long way. And I don't want to sound like a cliche, but if we can just start at that level and deconstruct these stigmas that we've built over really centuries, if we can start to deconstruct those because we are supposed to be disciples of Jesus Christ, that's what this all boils down to. And a lot of times I like to think simply, how would Jesus treat this person? So if we can do that at an individual level, I think we can just solve so many problems that are unnecessary that we just 
kind of pass on from generation to generation. And you are doing such an incredible job of that. And I admire you for it. Talk, of, just elaborate on this phrase, you are enough. This can go back to um, what I said about being so tied up in the future. That I think so many of us have this idea that we can be happy once we have this or once we create this lifestyle or we're tethering our happiness to this, this future outcome. And for me, for 25 years, it never occurred that I had enough and I was enough to just simply be happy how I was. That had never occurred to me. And so I think that, you know, whether it's because of mistakes or whether we fall into the myth of comparison, we, and it's not our fault, we're constantly being broadcast the message that we're not enough that we need this. You know, you turn on TV for 10 minutes or you get on social media for 10 minutes. You need this so that you can be like this. And they've created this. Uh, the, the best way I can put it is the, it's the water that the fish don't see. It's all around us. But we are constantly being broadcast this message that we are not enough. And it is a lie. Wherever you are right now or whoever you are, you are enough. And you have enough right now to be happy. And you have enough right now to make a contribution to the world. And we need you to do that. But it's, it's so easy to feel like we don't, we need something more than we have right now, or we need to be something more than we are right now. We don't. It's a great section. I think if all our older selves, I'm 59, could go back and talk to our 22-year-old selves or 25-year-old selves or if you're 35 to your 25-year-old self, I think we'd talk like Braden talking right now. Um, I think we'd be much kinder to our younger selves and want them to be happy where they are at that stage in their life. Um, and so I think we'd need to adopt that narrative. I think it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, loving parents who love us. But I think, you know, you write about the education system, social media. There's so many things that just create this feeling of not measuring up. We are enough. It's all measurable. And, and it's often comparative in nature. So it's just not, I do like the phrase, the pride of self-respect. To me, that's me doing my best in my own vacuum. It's not comparative in nature. No, I love that. It's just, it's, so I think um, we always talk about in the church, uh, usually about pride as a negative word. I think that kind of pride is actually good. Braden is showing that kind of pride. It's just the pride of being very happy with who he is. It doesn't mean he's perfect. doesn't mean he still wants to progress, but he is in a spot where he feels like he's enough now. And as a parent, I, would, I want that for our own kids. So why wouldn't our heavenly parents want that for us now? I am um, in the October Ensign, and I have a hard copy in front of us. I was asked to write an introduction to the young adult section and then also provide an article about pornography. So on page 68, it's just my introduction for the young adult section, and I'm just going to read it. I, because um, it applies to what we're talking about today. So bear with me. I'm not a very good reader when I'm reading. <laughs> are you or someone you love, are you or is someone you love caught in the cycle of messing up, repenting, recommitting, and messing up again? Many wonderful adults, young adults I worked with when I was serving as a young single adult board bishop were trapped in the same cycle. 
but many found freedom through the atonement of Jesus Christ. The message about addiction, and I'm I'm adding to my own words here, be careful to take on that label of addiction, by the way. And this month's section offer helpful insights to fighting freedom, freedom for yourself through others. The most important thing we can remember is that we are all beloved children of Heavenly Father. Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf taught, quote, God is not waiting to love you until you've overcome your weaknesses and bad habits. He loves you today with a full understanding of your struggles. He knows of your remorse for the times you have fallen short or have failed, and he still loves you, end quote. On the other hand, Satan will try to convince you that you are beyond and excluded from Heavenly Father's love and the Savior's power to transform and cleanse you. Satan will try to keep you in a whirlpool of shame and self-loathing. But don't believe his lies. Instead, turn to Heavenly Father. Don't be afraid to open up to your bishop or branch president or others who love you. And I'm going to add Doug Cartwright here in Braden's case. I just said that's not really in the article, by the way. (laughs) As you read the stories of hope from other young adults who have been affected by addiction, act on the impressions you receive. Be patient with yourself. Remember your divine nature. Take it one day at a time and believing in the healing power of the atonement of Jesus Christ. He and many, he and so many resources will help you succeed in finding the freedom we desire. Don't ever give up. Your friend Richard Osler. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah. I, that's incredibly well said, by the way, I think that the most important part, or at least what sticks out to me there is, um, the way that we are tricked into feeling unworthy. I think that that word is so often misused that and especially in the context of having a temple recommend right because even if you don't have a temple recommend or even if you haven't been to church in however many years if you're not taking the sacrament whatever you are not unworthy of anything you have the right to feel happy you have a right to proceed with your life you have a right to feel fulfilled And again, this was something that had never occurred to me for like 25 years of my life, that it's okay to, if you have a pornography addiction, it's okay to be there right now. If you have, uh, you know, if you're self-harming, it's okay to be there right now, okay? You can relax into who you are right now and you can give yourself permission to mess up. You can continue to keep trying. You don't have to break those bad habits in X amount of time. So this idea of being unworthy is, again, another false narrative. You're not, nobody's unworthy of anything. Nobody is unworthy of feeling the Savior's love, of feeling God's love, of feeling your own love. And I think a lot of the time, you know, once I, I, I experienced this whole self-transformation over the past year, the, the validation and the love and the approval that I was seeking was my own the whole time. 
I thought it was going to come externally. It was mine the whole time. But you are worthy of feeling love for yourself. You can feel that regardless of where you are right now, regardless of what you think is wrong with you or what makes you unworthy. You have the right. You're not unworthy of love ever. Talk, talk more about learning to love yourself. Um, I have always been, you know, everybody's their own worst critic, right? So even though like I, I was a good friend, I was a good brother. I was for the most part, a, a pretty decent son. Right. But I was always thinking like, why am I not this way? Or why am I not that way? Or why am I not like so-and-so or, and I was always thinking about this, um, you know, during that period when, when I was self-harming, um, I was thinking about what I wasn't, but when I got to this point where I started to dissect my narratives, I started to just sort of intuitively and naturally as I did that, I started to realize, well, who am I to criticize myself in that way? <laughs> Almost, if that makes sense. I, I started to like check myself or check my own criticisms. And as I did that, I grew to love myself. And a huge part of this, by the way, is um, meeting the woman who is now my wife. When she just loved me the way that I was, it made it so much easier for myself to, to love myself. And to be clear, that doesn't need to come from somebody else. You can choose that at any moment. That helped me. But I am so ultra aware of the way that I talk to myself now and the sorts of inputs that I feed my mind because that's going to influence how you feel about yourself. And at any moment, I could have chosen to love myself the way that I was, but I, I simply just made the choice not to because I thought that I had to be different from how I was. It's a really good segment. Um... I'm reminded of narratives that I've communicated to myself. I'm, as I mentioned, 59. And one of the narratives that culturally, I think, created a narrative inside of me is to tie my self-worth as an active Latter-day Saint and male to church callings. And I remember um, hearing a narrative that, you, you know, your mission success, no one ever explicitly told me this, but it was based on mission leadership. And I finally did a Facebook post that starts with, so were you an AP on your mission? Um, <laughs> but then I recognized, even though I was aware of that culturally, it impacted me pretty significantly and was one of the reasons I ended up seeking therapy in my 50s because I just, so much of my self-worth was tied into church assignments. And some of those came my way and some didn't. I'm... And I'm more at peace that that is not, that my self-worth is tied in my relationship with Heavenly Father, my relationship with the Savior, my wife, and my children, things that are within my control and not things that are not in my control, such as church callings. And that still is a bit of a journey for me because yeah. I have sometimes on my morning walks, that's probably why I asked you the question, my negative narrative sometimes comes back to me and reminds me that, you know, 
people that are close to me in my life have had much more significant church callings. I even named it in my brain, the A-train, um, that you sort of get on the A-train with callings and they lead to more callings. And yeah, I never quite got on the A-train um, in the way I thought I would. And I don't want to be negative about people on the A-train because they are great men um, that are serving in significant ways and diver- deserve our support. And they've blessed my life. But I've, it's kind of just being open to listeners, especially younger men. Don't, don't, you know, tie your self-worth with your church callings. Um, tie it with things that are in your control. And maybe that's a principle for all of us is tie your self-worth into things that are in your control mm-hmm. and not things that are not, well, you know what I mean without saying that wrong. Um, I'm also remembered during that time when I was in a pretty dark spot, there were two outside of my own family there. You don't know this, but you and Chris Marino, a couple times, you would, you just interacted with me in a way that was really helpful. You didn't know what was going on. I love Chris Marino. Um, and you guys were just aware that I was in a little different spot and you didn't, you know, you're 30 years younger than me, but you both just at times just did something for me that was very helpful. And, um, I've appreciated that. And I share that to thank you and Chris, but I also share that to invite others to act on impressions where you may be thinking, well, how can I help him? He's 30 years older than me and he seems to have it all put together and don't, act on your impressions. You may be able to help someone that only you can help. And you may never know how much you help them by just being kind to them. Or I think one of you stopped on the street one day on my walk and just, you know, interacted with me. So, um, anyway, just some thoughts on that. Um, that's fascinating to me. Can I, Sure. you're onto something. Uh, so as I was driving over here, one of the recurring themes that I've noticed in my life since that day when I had that conversation is we all have this very, very small voice. A lot of us know it as the still small voice. I don't believe that it's the Holy Ghost. I believe that the Holy Ghost influences this, but we all have this inner voice. And so many times it's not logical, but it's trying to communicate to us. I like to call it my intuition, but it's constantly trying to break through this static and this white noise of day-to-day life. And the more you can learn to follow that, the bigger difference you can make in the world. That's what I'm noticing. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because that day, you know, that the interaction that we had, I wasn't thinking consciously, you know, he looks like he's having a rough day or, you know, I better go say something to him. It was very simple day-to-day interaction. But we all have this, this voice that's pulling us in one way or another. And I, every single morning, the first thing I do when I wake up is I take three to five minutes and I, I don't look at my phone. I don't, I don't listen to anything. I simply just sit in silence and I try to tune out the logical part of my brain because I believe that's how we tap into this divine source of communication. And it's been, this has been so fascinating to me and I've written about it a lot, but the more you can learn to follow that voice, everybody has it. It's just a matter of wanting to listen to it. The more you follow that, the bigger difference you'll be able to make in the world. And it always leads you to miraculous circumstances. I'm so glad you brought that up. It's cool. Talk about, um, 
I want to talk about you finding your wife. I want to talk about you losing weight. Mm-hmm. Which do you want to talk about first? Uh, let's do the weight. Okay. So uh, that week after I had that conversation with my friend, and I mentioned I felt like I just simply turned a corner. I woke up one day and felt like after years of contemplating suicide every day, I finally had this feeling that everything was going to be all right. And this was in, uh, yeah, like I said, November. So I go over to my friend's house. It was Tanner Eldridge. Tanner. Way to go, Tanner. Yeah. And he's like, we were watching something. And he's like, hey, let's go get something to eat. And so I got in his car and he drove me to Outback Steakhouse. And I'm like, like we had never been. I hadn't been to Outback Steakhouse in years. I'm like, dude, what are we doing at Outback Steakhouse? He's like, oh, I'm doing keto. And I had kind of heard of keto. I perceived it like many people do as some like trendy fad diet, right? And I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'll eat at Outback Steakhouse. So we go in, we sit down, and he's telling me about the keto diet. And this is an example of that, that voice. Something he said, I can't even remember what it was. It just made me think, well, I better try that. <laughs> like He was no expert on it or anything. He was just trying it out for a few days. And I literally went home that night and in the middle of the night, I had just bought groceries. I threw out all my groceries I had just bought that day, all the carb loaded groceries. And I researched the keto diet, went to the grocery store, got all keto friendly foods. And long story short, I've now lost 60 pounds, 18% body fat. And during that time, I started my own keto coaching program because I'm like, how do more people not know about this? And it wasn't just about the weight loss, but it was, I I achieved so much mental clarity, um, focus, and just this renewed sense of self-confidence. And I'm like, well, how could I not share that with people? So just sort of intuitively as I went and researched and I became obsessive about it, right? Um, Started just coaching people through the keto diet, which is what I'm doing now. How do people find out more if they want to connect with you regarding keto? Uh, you can go to ketowithbraden.com. That's my website. Or you can reach out to me on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, just Braden Orgel, B-R-A-D-E-N-O-R-G-I-L-L. Talk about the great career you have and the career change you made. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I was working, I worked for two and a half years as an insurance broker and um, worked at a phenomenal company, had a great experience, um, loved everybody I worked with. But as I'm going through this whole transformation and I'm seeing what kind of change is possible in life, um, I'm going to, to work every day and I'm like, this was also a big part of why I felt unfulfilled was because the nature of the work that I was doing was unfulfilling to me. And I was making a great living as an insurance broker. It was a very lucrative business. But on the side, I started to, like I said, coach people through the keto diet. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is what I need to be doing. And the best way I can describe that, what influenced the decision to leave my job, my career as an insurance broker is if, if I stripped all my titles away, and I thought about this when you were sharing your, your, experience about church callings. 
So if I stripped all the titles that I would use to describe myself to the world, like husband, father, dad, or husband, father, brother, um, you know, whatever. If I took all those titles away, who am I at my core, at my source? And as I was doing the keto coaching, I finally felt like I tapped into who I really was at my source in sharing this with people and helping them to experience the same life change that I went through, through the keto diet, I finally felt like I tapped into that Braden and really the essence of my creation in helping people through that, helping people to transform their bodies and their minds and their life. And I'm like, that's what I need to be doing. That's what I, I'm here for. And so it was almost like a lightning strike in my professional life that led me to do it. I'm glad you're doing it. And it helps me understand where you are in your self-awareness of you and your willingness just to belong and not fit in. Fit in would say, don't do that. Mm -hmm. um, the thing we do is we take safe corporate jobs. Um, <laughs> yeah. And you had a really good one. Uh -huh. um, and that can be the path for many people. I don't think either of us are saying don't do that if you feel like that's your path. But yeah. I love that you had the courage at your age to just be self-aware enough of your skills and your mission and the way you could help people to do what you felt was the right thing to do. It helps me understand you're in a really good spot. And I think a lot of us get older in life and wish we had been more self-aware at earlier ages. And I'm pretty happy with the career I did, so I don't have much of that. Mm -hmm. But I think people my age do often, where they just sort of bought into the cultural expectations yeah. for their career or their life path without totally kind of being self-aware of what they needed to do. Yeah. And um, I think as parents, our goals are to give our children principles to make good decisions versus telling them exactly what to do. Even as a YSA bishop, I would almost never tell a YSA what to do. Mm -hmm. I would just try to lay down principles to help them make a more thoughtful decision. Yeah. Um, talk about your wife, Emily. Um, when you met her, she's divorced. And yeah. so that's, um, we've talked a little bit about that. I've been open when my dating life that I had a checklist of things that I wanted in a woman. And my assumption was, is that if I hit all the checklists, the woman I was looking for with the gifts and attributes and abilities would be underneath all those checklists. And then I actually dated a divorced woman. Oh, no kidding. And she blew my mind because she didn't have any those check boxes are a few of them, but she had everything I was looking for. Uh -huh. And I didn't end up marrying a divorced woman, but it got me out of the checklist thing. And I just recognized I ought to be looking at the person and not this checklist. And that was really important for me in my 20s as I was dating. So obviously, um, just with that lead and just share what you'd like to share about your dear wife, Emily. Um, I could not begin to describe I couldn't do her justice with words um, because what she did for me and what she does for me uh, as a wife and just as a friend is so incredibly difficult to do as a mother as well um, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but the, the, the amount of just emotional and physical workload that she handles every day is, it blows my mind. 
but Emily, when I, when I went on a date with our first date, she had just been somebody that like, we followed each other on social media and, um, like never really knew each other. She knew my brother cause she went to, she graduated with him, but, um, I always just felt drawn to her. So it, it made no sense. I just felt like she was interesting. I want to get to know her. Anyway, years passed. She got married, um, had a child in her first marriage, and then was divorced. But I decided to ask her out one night, and I, I didn't ever label her as a divorced woman or a mom. She was just a woman who I wanted to get to know. And like within five minutes on our first date, I hit, uh, I was like, oh my gosh, this is what I have been looking for the whole time. And it's kind of like the same experience you had where like, it wasn't that she checked all of these boxes. I didn't really have any boxes, Good, but I was just like all these dates I had been going on, like, this is exactly what I have been looking for the whole time as far as just the interaction and who she was, the way she talked, the way she, uh, you know, had been, she had been through a lot in her life. And so I kind of loved that she had been through some turbulence as I had. Um, and so we kind of bonded over that, but she is the most fascinating and incredible person I have ever met in my life. And she probably won't, doesn't believe it when I tell her, but I, look to her as an example in so many ways. And I am so lucky to have found her. But that's another example of like, logically, it made no sense because, you know, I could have thought, well, she's, you know, a, a single mom, she's been divorced. And so I could have easily just discount, but I just felt like one night, like, hey, why not ask her out? And it ended up changing the entire trajectory of my life in the best way. Oh, quickly were you honest with your own story in the dating process with Emily yeah really quickly uh there was almost no like we did small talk way later in the, like almost when we were engaged we started well, what's your favorite color or whatever but really quickly um you know one of the things that i learned as i was deconstructing my narratives was that I was going to have to be vulnerable in order for this to work. And so just from like right off the bat, I would tell her things that, you know, when I had been on dates before, I felt like I had to project the best parts of me. But with her, I was so comfortable and open sharing everything about me. Um, and she was incredible because first of all, she didn't judge any of that. You know, she just listened and, and asked great questions about it and took interest in me. But she also did the same to me as I was vulnerable and she, she became vulnerable back. But I thought my whole time, you know, all these dates I went on before that I had to like highlight that I had a good job or that like I came from a good family or whatever. I thought that I had to just project that so that they could mask like the other parts of me that I didn't see as favorable. But with M, I was just, like so comfortable being open with her from the get-go and I don't know why but it was it was just an amazing experience dating her I love that I read a quote from Henry Norwin a Catholic priest um I won't read the whole quote but it's just exactly what you're teaching us and what you experienced 
over the last few years, I've become increasingly aware that true healing mostly takes place through the sharing of weaknesses. Mostly we're afraid of weaknesses or just, I wouldn't even call them weaknesses, just our honest parts of ourselves. We hide them at all costs and make them unavailable to others, but often to ourselves. In this way, we end up living double lives against even our own desires. One life that we present ourselves to the world, to ourselves, and to God as the person who is in control. And another life in which we feel insecure, doubtful, confused, and anxious, and totally out of control. The split between these two lives causes a lot of suffering. I've become increasingly aware of the importance of overcoming this great chasm is that true friendship and community becomes possible to degree that I'm able to share my weaknesses with others. And that's what you did with Emily. And that's what we do in this podcast. And that's what we do with true friends. Mm-hmm. And then we don't, then we belong and we heal. We, the word vulnerable was not a word in my vocabulary 10 years ago or probably five years ago to the extent it is now. And I've looked at it as a weakness. I've looked at it as something men don't do. We don't do it all the time in every format, but I love the way you and Emily got vulnerable really quickly. We did. And the small talk came even later. That's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I, I love this love story. I've been on social media with Braden and Emily, and they are just a beautiful couple. You were sealed um, in the temple. Tell us at that date. Well, that was May 23rd of this year. Of this year. And I know yeah. you were married before then, I believe. Yeah, married civilly on April 2nd. So I remember seeing, I think, both of those on my social media and just a great couple. And I just think we we need vulnerable and authentic relationships in our lives because I think that's just allows us to move forward. I think the atonement of Jesus Christ works better sometimes um, in our lives when we'll feel the love of other people. And I think, Emily, what she did for you is what our, our all of us that are parents should do for our children, what I think our heavenly parents would do for us as we open up, is they would respond the same way Emily did. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some wonderful principles there of just human relations. Um, any more you want to share on that segment about being vulnerable, the importance of this wonderful w- woman in your life? Yeah. It, so it's, it's one thing to be vulnerable with others. Um, the, a, a part of that that fascinates me is being vulnerable with yourself. And the way that I learned to do this is from, <laughs> it's kind of funny, but w- one of my favorite authors, Mark Manson, um, I can't remember what book this is in, but it's kind of like, it was like the first, I used to steer clear of this, the self-help stuff, but I, I opened this one and he talks about a, this superhero called the truth panda that he makes up. And he's kind of a funny guy, but the idea of the truth panda is he, come and knock, he comes and knocks on your door and he tells you like the brutal truth of what's going on in your life. And it helps you, it, the idea is to be vulnerable with yourself and to tell yourself the truth. So the example that he gives is like the truth panda comes and knocks on your door and says like, hey, um, making more money isn't going to make your relationship with your kids better. Or you know, to it, it, the idea is to tear down these strengths that we are hiding our weaknesses with, because it's hard to be vulnerable with ourselves and to recognize in which areas of our lives we can work on. Um, we, we, we try to steer away from that, I think, because we think it's going to be painful maybe, but being vulnerable with yourself is so empowering and so liberating in recognizing the truths of who you are and what you're meant to be 
and where you are in your life, that's an extremely liberating experience is being vulnerable with yourself. So let's talk about the LDS Church. You're obviously been sealed in the temple. You're active LDS. During this time of not having a temple recommend, um, did you think about leaving the church and and or what kept you in the church? What was the core of your testimony during that time? Yeah. So during this whole time, um, when I didn't have a recommend and I was considered inactive, right? The one thing I never stopped doing was paying my tithing. I was always just uh, so consistent with that. Like immediately when I would get paid, I would pay my tithing, even if I haven't been to church in months, right? Um, I never thought about leaving the church, but I would fantasize about how easy I thought it would make my life if I did. I would think about every day, well, I could just leave the church now. And then, you know, I wouldn't have all this pressure to come back and I wouldn't have to work this hard to get my recommend back and, you know, give up drugs or whatever. Um, but I never left and I always paid my tithing. And that looking back was, it tethered me to not just the church, but to heavenly father and Jesus Christ. That I always felt like I demonstrated my testimony by paying my tithing. I, like I always believed in it and I was going to show it in that way, no matter how far I got. I love that part about your story. Um, sort of thought about, you know, I think God, if we can't keep every covenant, I think, I think he would want us to keep all the covenants we can. Mm-hmm. And I think Satan, I don't think Satan really wins if we mess up. I think he wins if he can convince us of the lie we're not worthy, like you've so well taught, and that we shouldn't keep any of our covenants. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of an all or nothing. If we've messed up in one area, then it's we should just give up. Mm-hmm. And we should be out of the church and not live any of those standards. And I love the way that you had this testimony of tithing, and I love the word tethered. Mm-hmm. I can visually see that when mm-hmm. I think of a tether ball anchored to a pole. I guess that's a sport that I haven't played <laughs> since I was in sixth grade. Um, but I love that. And I think it's great advice for all of you that are maybe where Braden was without a temple recommend, inactive. Um, I love that. And I just invite you to keep all the covenants you can. Mm-hmm. And there's blessings in each of those covenants. So don't make it a binary that God... And he loves you, you know, just as Braden's taught, and I believe. Talk about, I had another question, if I were your YSA bishop or your parent, um, let's just pretend I'm your YSA bishop and you're inactive in my ward. What could I, any advice for us leaders to, every case is different, but what would be helpful if you were in my office during this time? What would I say to you would be the most helpful? Um. If I were a YSA bishop. It'd be a good one one day. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. I, I, uh, I don't know if I would, but I you appreciate would. that. Uh, I would tell some, I would tell a YSA, I would tell anybody who's on this, this mortal journey to give yourself permission to fail. It's okay if you mess up. Now, that doesn't mean like deliberately rebel and disobey. 
but give yourself permission to fail. Because in this life, we are here to, to mess up, essentially. That's what we're here to do. And so we, there's this stigma around uh, sin. And we need to recognize it for what it is. And all sin is is a chance to be better. That's it. There's no That's shame in that there's statement. No sh- yeah, there, it, it's just a chance to be better. That's all it is, which is what we're here to do anyway. And uh, I would share that as well that I believe that our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ are so overwhelmingly merciful. And we are going to be so, we are going to be so taken back when we realize how merciful they are towards us. And I've always had that. This isn't church doctrine, by the way, but I've had this theory and I like to refer to it as my ankle weight theory. And the, the concept that I've kind of drawn up in my mind is the commandments that we're given and the guidelines that we're going to live by. If those were the bare minimum that we needed to become like God, then everybody falls short. If that's the bare minimum, none of us reach that. So I think that the bar is set so high that even if we come up short, we have still we have still become so much like God that we've made strides more progress eternally than we thought we had, if that makes any sense. So the bar, I think we perceive it as being set as the bare minimum. Like I do this and this and this and this, and then I get into heaven. But if I fall short, I don't. I think that this bar is set so high for us that if we shoot for that and we come up short, we've progressed eternally so much that we look back and we, we know that we've done that. Talk about your relationship with the Savior and the atonement. There's obviously sin in all of our lives that the atonement has helped you overcome, but just talk about all the role of the atonement to just help you feel better about yourself and more accepting of yourself and just your relationship with the Savior. Anything you want to share along those lines? Yeah, I, I think that um, we've even created a stigma around the atonement and repentance, that it's this heart-wrenching, really difficult Garden of Gethsemane-esque process that's going to take so long and is going to cause us so much pain that it's, you know, it's not even worth it. But I think that the atonement is so accessible to us and it's, we start to tap into it when we simply make the decision that we want to improve an area of our life that we think we need to. So as soon, and the, the reason I think that is because as soon as I made that decision, walking away from that lunch that day that I was going to just try to make a change, I started to feel a literal cleansing of my heart and my soul. And as I did that, my whole, the whole way I looked at the world and looked at life was transformed. But like, I didn't have to go through all of this super painful process to gain access to that. I didn't like finally reach the end and I was like, okay, now I feel whole. It was simply, I just made the decision that I'm going to improve a couple of these things that I know I need to. And as soon as I just simply made that decision, it started to take effect in my life. 
And so um, the, the saying that the saver's always knocking or he's always close by, it sounds like a cliche, but it is so unbelievably true that he's waiting for you to simply make a decision that you want to reach him or that you want to be better. And he is so empowering and can help as soon as you just make the decision. You don't have to wait until the end of your, you know, the process of your repentance. It's as, as soon as you make the decision. I love that. That's a great segment. I, I wouldn't have quite bought into that, except after working with people through repentance, I looked at it as less mechanical. The more I, the lo- less time related to me, the, ato- the repentance part of the atonement is just godly sorrow and change of heart. And any restrictions I put on a YSA were a means to accomplish that. Sometimes the means, the restrictions in the YSA became the end goal. You just know that if you mess up this, then it's this many months before you get to and back. But I think that's the law of Moses. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, I think a higher law is just, it, it's a change of heart and godly sorrow. And I think the Savior loves to forgive. I don't think he, it's his greatest gift. And so when you take advantage of it, or you listeners or I, I think he loves to forgive. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. I don't believe we're adding to his burden. Um, there's even perhaps a sign, there's even culturally that every time I mess up, I'm adding to the Savior's burden and his cross is heavier. He's already paid the price. And so I think he's just glad when we take advantage of it. And the prodigal son is the most powerful example of that, where he runs to the son, there's no shaming. There's no groveling. There's no time there. It's just love. Yeah. And to signal he comes back as a son and not a servant. He assumed he came back as a servant. He puts a ring on his finger and a, a coat, and it forever answers the question, when we've messed up and we're in that faraway land, do we come back as a son or a servant? So I think you're teaching what Christ would want, Braden, about the power of the atonement. I don't think it needs to always be very complicated. And maybe much of the pain you already felt through your, you, you didn't need to feel more pain to take advantage right. of the atonement. You just needed to feel his love in your life. Yeah. Um, so I love, and I love the hope that you communicate in that too. So that's a great segment. Um, anything else you want to share with our listeners? Um, yeah, that bit that you touched on, and this is, this is a while back, but about working a corporate job because we're told to. Um, you don't, my message to, to especially younger listeners, but really anybody, you don't have to live a dream that was sold to you. And I've become so fascinated by this since I made my jump out of my, my safe office job. And the example that comes to mind is that you you tell a four or five-year-old kid, you know, you can be anything you want in the world because that's a safe thing to tell a four or five-year-old kid. It doesn't carry any immediate consequences, but you get older, you know, you get into high school and they're like, no, actually you can do like one of these 10 things. And so it's this, this default career professional path that's just kind of fed to us. And we think that we have to do that and you don't actually have to do that. And this is ties into being part of, you know, relaxing into who you are. 
I think that everybody listening to this has a unique gift inside of them that they can bring into the world that only they can do. And I think that we've just been taught to fly too low professionally. I think that we've been um, brainwashed into buying this sort of industrialist mindset. And that, that was a big part of where my anxiety came from was my professional career. And because I thought I had to work this job and do all this because it was like a nice story for my parents to tell at a, at a holiday party. That was always the scenario I was imagining. Like I'm working this job so that my parents can tell their friends that they're, they're doing this. And my message is that the individual now has so much more leverage than we've ever had in history in the sense that if you have $30 a month, you can connect to the internet and you can access 1.5 billion people and you can bring them a gift. Even if, you know, you're working your, your nine to five career on in the day. And then on the side, you do something like this, like this podcast. I mean, you have so much leverage and you're able to reach so many people with this that I believe everybody on earth has the capability to do something like that. It's just a matter of, of deciding to do it and taking that first step. And so I think that if somebody would have told me that before I became, you know, before I, I got into the drugs and, and drinking and everything, if somebody would have told me that, I think my path would have been a lot different. I'm grateful for the path that brought me to where I am now. But I think if more people knew that, that you don't have to live a dream that somebody else sold you, I think that can help alleviate this mass sense of anxiety and stress that a lot of us experience. You've got some incredibly good phrases in here. Relaxing into who you are. You've used that a couple times. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm coming back to, this is so interesting just to my own story, because just like you talked about your parents and wanting to talk about their son mm-hmm. in a career, I've felt that in my family culture, in the church culture, because I just heard men define my whole life, mm-hmm. not by their Christ-like attributes and preach my gospel chapter six, but by their careers and especially right. by their church careers. Yep. Um, so after 20 or 30 years of hearing that growing up, it's hardwired into me. And it's taken a lot of work for me to sort of deprogram. It's not totally deprogrammed. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's fascinating for me to hear that. And I look at where I am now and I'm becoming more and more comfortable as a committed Latter-day Saint that my path is different than I had thought it would be. Yeah. Um, and I'm relaxing into who I am Love that. Um, as a podcast host, talking about all this stuff. And um, it doesn't show up on my LDS tools. Um, perhaps um, a lot of people don't understand this type of service in our church culture community. Cause it's, it's a different type. It's yeah. But on some days I'm so grateful to be where I am and, and honored to be, have these kind of conversations, the conversations we have on the podcast, that I wouldn't change it for what I thought my path would be. And so I share that with our listeners, not to sort of bring attention to me, but to use as an example for all of us. And Braden's teaching us that to relax in who you are. Yeah. 
And I think the fundamental core of that is a relationship with heavenly parents that can help us understand who we are and what we should be doing. Absolutely. And, and, and that is something that's in our control, a relationship with heavenly parents and personal revelation to what we should be doing in our life. Mm-hmm. And the culture and, can help us at times and parents' expectations can help us. That has helped me. So a lot of those voices around us can be very helpful at times, but at the end of the day, you need to get where Braden is and, and where I'm trying to get and all of us are trying to get, and you probably don't want to say you've arrived, but you're in a good spot. Um, this is a really good podcast. Talk about just how, go through your social media channels, help, tell people understand your website, your YouTube, and any other um, links you want to give out so people can connect with you. Yeah, so my website, uh, ketowithbraden.com. Uh, you can find out more a little bit about my, like my keto journey there and um, how it helped me transform not only my body, but my mind. Um, and then in addition to that, from my website, if you go to ketowithbraden.com slash personal blog, uh, I publish a blog post every single day just about um, things I notice in the world that I think you know, might be helpful. A lot of it is advice that I would have given to myself as I was going through this. So I publish a blog post, a short blog post every day. Um, And then you can reach me uh, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at just Braden Orgel. Um, And then I have a YouTube channel if you search Braden Orgel because I wanted to document my jump from my safe nine to five corporate job to doing something that truly fulfills me and I'm passionate about. And it's for that same reason. It's to show people that you can pursue something you're passionate about and it's not going to end up as badly as you were thinking it was. It's doable now. So I want to document the the parts of my jump to show people that, yeah, you can do this. Because I think that if more young people knew that, um, they could save themselves a lot of anxiety riddled years, you know, especially in college. And as you're thinking about what you want to do professionally. And so I want to serve as an example that you are able to do that, that God would want you to do something that fulfills you. Thanks for being on the podcast, Braden. If your parents, you've given them a shout out or listening they're friends of mine, Papa and Ma- Mama Orgill. You've done a great job in raising um, Braden and Cole. I think there's just the two of you. Uh-huh, just us. I'm no, I was pretty sure I wasn't leaving somebody out. Two great sons, um, people, two men that I look up to and are just doing great things. I'm grateful for all the friends in Braden's life. We've talked about Doug and Tanner, and there's many others, and I love the friendship group that you have and how you're all bonding together to help each other. I love your life story, the way it is helping other people. Um, your good wife, Emily. Um, I love this beautiful romance that's just everything a marriage should be. Thank you. And um, you're just a wonderful couple. And you two have a really wonderful, uni- unique life mission. Um, I am going to end with this quote that we use a lot on the podcast. And it's really who you are. Um, it's called The Wounded Healer. A minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led of the desert by someone who's never been there. So, Braden Orgel, you're a wounded healer. You know some pretty brutal deserts. 
but you will be able to reach people and be safe places for them to help them. And that's just really what we all need is we're all a little wounded and we all need healers in our life to walk us out of these deserts. And that will be part of your beautiful life mission. Thank you, our podcast listeners. There's about eight or 9,000 of you that listen to every episode. So thank you for all you're doing to scale this podcast and connect more. And thank you especially to our guests like Braden who bravely come on and share their stories. Thank you for having me. 